0: Before I I get to that text, I want to um, read in James, because to me this text is what lives out this passage that James talks about. In chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Father, we just want to thank You for Your Word, God, and I just pray that You will just speak to us, that You will allow me to speak truthfully, and that Your message will be clear this morning, God, for what it is that You have for us to see in Your Word. Lord, we just love You and we thank You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage is one that's very well known. We we grew up with it. We we learned it from the very beginning, and we have worked through it um, throughout our childhood up to our, our, even into our adult lives, and it seems that no matter how many times I read this, I see something even more profound and more in depth with it, and no matter how, how much I prepared for this text, God was constantly changing it and shifting it, and you know, I learned the the words of, um, of uh, Brother Bill, who when he told me that uh, a sermon is never really complete, it's never really finished, because even as you get up there to To preach it, it is constantly changing throughout that time. This passage is going to show just that that verse from James and how it can be lived out in the anointed king's life and on our own as well. So let me start out in chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. And all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. It's interesting to see in the very beginning of this passage that they point out not, first of all, where David was, but where he wasn't. You see, David, this was the time of season whenever kings were out battling. This is actually set right in between uh, a war that they were actually in where they were besieging the city, and um, David yet wasn't out there. He had sent Joab and the rest of Israel in the army, and he stayed back. Now, why is that important to see? Well, I've never gotten in trouble for being in the place I was supposed to be, right? And here it is, it's showing that as David was not at war when it was the season for war, because this was the time to where, see Back then, the armies and the, and the the nations weren't set up for warfare during rainy seasons or cold weather, so they would set up, and they would set up a siege and just wait out the winters from the safety of their base camps during this time. And... This was the season when he should have been with his soldiers. So he's not at war. He has been set up, and says in the, in the chapters before, that this was a man who was victorious. He was set up successfully by God. And it says in 1 Samuel 16 that he was the king that Yahweh had chosen. He was a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13. So here it is, he's set up. He is on top of the world. He has everything that he could ever want: power, he has prestige, he has now come into a time to where he's just sitting up and relaxing. And it even says that he got up from his couch. And I just imagine David getting up from his couch and walking around, strolling around on the rooftop. And what happens? Kind of sets up, and I can just imagine him sitting up and looking down at all the rooftops below him. Then he sees a woman. Hey, who is that? Who's that lady? Well, King, that is that is Bathsheba, is it not? Isn't that the daughter of Eliam? Isn't that the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Lord, that's somebody's. That's somebody's daughter somebody's wife that you're looking at. So here it is. He has a, the wandering eye. And this brings in the word complacency. Complacency is defined as self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. When I looked up the synonyms of what complacency was, it said big-headed, it says uh, self-admiration. But the one that stuck out the most to me was self-glory. David has done what most of us do. He's on top of the world. And what do we do? We, we forget and replace the titles of blessings. What used to be God's blessings on our lives now have become my accomplishments. These are things that wow, look at what I've done. I've accomplished these things. And it's no longer, look what God has done for me. That happens very quickly. See, when we're on top of the world, we have a tendency to let down our guard. When I say that, it comes to mind. I was stationed in Korea for a year. And what I learned over there is that on the border, the DMZ, um, which is the most heavily fortified border between two nations in the world, between North Korea and South Korea. And you're talking about on this border, there is literally maybe a six-inch berm, a concrete pylon that stretches, and that's all that separates a South Korean guard and a North Korean guard. And it's interesting to find out that, whenever uh, the South Korean guards go to their posts, especially whenever there are visitors there at this site because you can go and visit the DMZ, and they have a stance that's called rock-ready stance. And it's called rock-ready not as in rock as in solid rock, but rock as in R-O-K, Republic of Korea. And it's a stance, it's actually, it's a modified Taekwondo stance. And they have to stand in this stance posed for intimidation and to show that they're ready at any given point in time. And the stance looks like this. And can you imagine you have this guard standing across from you and he's posed like this. There's no scratching your nose. There's no looking around. There's no bathroom breaks. There is absolutely no relief from the duty until the visitors at this location leave. So for hours upon hours, you have these soldiers standing on guard at all times. And that's the depiction that I see that we always need to take when it comes to temptation. Because see, remember in James, and whenever he says that in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And we need to have this this rock-ready stance in our own lives at all times. Why? Because... Not like the, the war between South Korea and North Korea. See, back in 1953, there was just a, a ceasefire. And technically, they are still in a state of warfare. It's just been a ceasefire since 19, excuse me, 1953. With sin, there's never a ceasefire. There's never a timeout. There's never a moment to where you, you do this and say, hold on, let me catch my breath you are always in a state of warfare against temptation. What, is the, what does the Bible tell us? Anytime it comes up and it talks about sin and what we should do with it, what our action should be, is to flee. Flee from sin. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, Love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's not that you... Well, let me say it this way. To take this stance, you just have to understand the power of sin and the weakness of you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany. And this is a man that I didn't know anything about until I read a quote from him in a commentary that I was reading in preparation. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was was a man that was vehemently opposed to the Nazi regime and their atrocities that they were committing. And and ultimately, he would lose his life for it. But in a book that he wrote uh, called Temptations, this is what he says about sin. And I think that it's the perfect example of how sin starts as that desire and how it burns within us and how dangerous it is. In our members, there's a slumbering inclination toward desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and in its flames... In this moment, God is quite unreal to us, and Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with a forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will in the deepest darkness. It is here that everything in me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches that in times of temptation to our flesh is one command, flee, flee. Flee youthful lust. Flee worldly temptation. If you're feeling under pressure and on the verge of something, an emotion is welling up within you, what does the Bible say? Run. No human being has within them the strength to resist such overpowering emotions. Here we have this perfect picture being painted for us in the life of David. A man on top of the world looks down, sees a beautiful women, a woman, and what does he do? He inquires about her and ignores the, the concerns of his servants that are trying to bring delight to the king the best way they can. King, that's somebody's wife. King, the woman you're looking at is somebody's daughter. As we see in the rest of the story, Sin gets deeply rooted. Now the woman comes back and she says, I'm pregnant. And now comes the cover up. You have David that is now faced with a dilemma. And what is his action? what well, typically any person caught in sin or, or dealing with sin or, or something has to do, and that is, or they feel they have to do, and that's to cover it up, right? And this is what David does. He he's covers up the sin, and he has a strategy. He sends a letter to Joab, his commander, out on the front line, and he says, hey, bring Uriah back. Send him to me. So Uriah comes, and David has this plan to get him to come back into town sleep with his wife, and then everything will be covered up. He'll he'll think that this child is his. And you have this contrast of Uriah's devotion against David's void of integrity. David has Uriah even get drunk and tries to send him home to his wife, and still Uriah refuses He says, how can I go and enjoy the luxuries of my home and my wife when my brothers and my commander in Israel are on the front line? And it even goes back to the law. The law states that a warrior has to to, uh, uh, keep away from sex during time of warfare for cleanliness. And So now you see that this man is even upholding the law more than the anointed king is. See, sin has that compounding effect, doesn't it? It has us, grips us, sinks its teeth in, and one thing leads to another. You have lust that leads to adultery that ultimately is going to lead to murder. And while we can maybe say, well, I've never murdered anybody, we can all say, well, sin leads to lies, leads to deceit, leads to separation in our relationship with God. And so while we may want to put one on a higher level of magnitude than another, really in the eyes of God, they're all equal and the same. It causes us to compromise our integrity. So you have David. David was always a king, a a commander, a great commander who was always cautious about avoiding unnecessary casualties. And when he couldn't get Uriah to do what he wanted him to do, he sends him back to Joab with his own death sentence. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Do you not know what they would do, that they would shoot from the wall? And he scan on down there and says, he continues asking the questions, why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And whenever the messenger went to David and told him these things, David has this reaction in verse 25. He says, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And he tells the messenger to encourage Joab. You have a king that has always... Now, Joab knew that the king was going to get mad. Knew the king was going to get mad because not only did Uriah fall in this battle, but more of his men fell in this battle, in this death mission, right? It was a mission that was set up for failure, and they were were just going to be casualties of war. But Joab knew that David was always against unnecessary casualties. And so that's why he told his messenger, now whenever the king gets mad, that's whenever you need to remind him, hey, Uriah the Hittite also died. Sin causes us to compromise our integrity. David, his response is, hey, you know what? This is war. You know, People are going to die. People are going to fall. Don't you worry about it. You just hold your head up and you, you, just, you just keep on trucking. That's pretty much what he said. At any other point in time, David would have been furious on why did you allow my men to die unnecessarily. If you scan on down to the last verse of this chapter, the second part, it says, David sent and brought... After, the, after Uriah had died and the morning period was over, David goes and sends for Bathsheba, and he brings her into his house and makes her his wife, And it says in, in verse 27, "And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And you'd think that everything has he's gotten away with it, right? David thinks this was successful, nobody knows. everything is good. I'm in the clear. The bottom line is literally the bottom line of this passage. It is the last verse where it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We must remember that the silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. You can think that we get away with these things, that our sin that we live out in secrecy and that might not be seen by those closest to us are never overlooked by the eyes of God. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And if we if we stop there, it's a pretty doom and gloom message. Last, last week we talked about Israel and uh, Israel turning back to God and in Jeremiah 18 and, and with the story of the potter and the clay and how that repentance looks. And if we just ended there like we would here, then it would just be a very dark, abysmal story that would leave us with no hope. But the next chapter starts out that reminds us that grace is greater than our sin. says in verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had, brought, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against him, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who had done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because what he did, this thing he did, and because... He had no pity. So Nathan was smart in the way that he approached the king. As the king of Israel, David is not just the king who sits on the throne, but as the king, he's also the judge. The judge of any case like this. So what does Nathan do? He brings the word of God in a very crafty way that makes David have to judge himself without David even realizing it. We need Nathans. Each of us needs a Nathan in our lives, and each of us needs to be a Nathan in someone else's life that holds each other accountable, holds each other up, calls us out for what it is, and reminds us of the Word of God. See, David's fury just rises up, and it's kind of funny how that works whenever we're guilty of the same thing or our passion and our anger lashed out of it and to it is usually more violent than what it normally would be. As David tells him what the law says, which is it should be paid back fourfold. He even adds this. He says that man should die. And Nathan Looks at him at that point. He says, David, you are the man. You're the man that I'm talking about. You're the man that has done this. And David then knows that it's over with, it's out. He's been confronted with his sin. And Nathan goes on to say in verse 7 he says, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king of Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you the master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, have, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? The God saying... I gave you everything you needed, and if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. And yet you did what was evil, and you went and took from a man what wasn't yours. And living in a world where we, we're constantly thrown, being thrown in our faces the things that you need, get this, you need this, this is what's going to make your life happy, this is what you need to look like for your life to be pleasurable, this is who your spouse needs to look like for you to be enjoyable, and this is, this is what you need. We always feel like we need more, and we, we can't be too quick to judge David for what happened because we're all guilty of the same thing. See, David, according to the law for adultery and murder, he actually, his sentence was death. If we read, starting in 10, it says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, Because you have despised me and even taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For what you did, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of the deed you have early scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the picture of grace. This is the picture of, of the sentence being passed down to David. You deserve death, and yet God says, you shall not die but the sad point of it is is the fact that somebody in the line of David had to die. Did they not? Somebody from David's family tree was going to die. The anointed king of Israel needed a savior the same as we do. Someone from the family tree, the the line of David, was going to die for his sins and someone from the line of David died for ours. And this is where we can kind of get caught up in the dangers of moralism and legalism to where we go through saying, don't do this, do that, don't do this. The simple fact is, is that we have to remember that Jesus Christ was the one from the line of David that died for our sins. No matter how great we think they are, It was his life that that was put on the line. Not our own, even when we deserve the death. And to see the the repentant heart of David, one would need to go and read Psalm 51. This is a psalm that David wrote, and it shows the, the beautiful picture of what a truly repentant heart looks like. In this instance, in this time, For time, I won't be able to go through that with you, but I do want to leave you with this, uh, a a reminder of just how quickly and suddenly we can all fall. And I I love using hymnals and messages uh, just because there's so much truth, and this message won't be any different. It's the words from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. I mean, those words were spoken just out of truth of just how evil we can be. That our desires that are born from ourselves lead to the temptation and the the sin that brings forth the death in our lives prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And it's in those moments that we need to bathe and saturate ourselves with the Word of God and with prayer. Because the, the hymn finishes this out, says, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to thee. Like that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. So that's my prayer for you this morning, that as we go through the lies and the troubles and the the temptations that we deal with on a daily basis, that we, one, remember that we always need to be on guard. We always need to realize that there's never a ceasefire moment when it comes to sin, that we always have to have that rock steady stance, right? We need Nathan's. We need brothers and sisters that are going to hold us accountable, that are going to lift us up, they're going to help carry that burden for us. And we have to understand at all times that God's grace is always greater than your sin. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word, God. We thank you for this truth in the message that comes through the life of David, God that that we are able to read your word and learn from, from what he went through and see ourselves in this own story played out in one way or another in today's time in our lives. Hey God, we are so grateful that, as the song says, that how great that chasm is, Father, that Jesus Christ is our living hope. and that just as david needed a savior and that that the sin in our lives has a verdict of death god that you so freely laid your life down for us in that place and that we were shown the grace and the mercy and God it's in it's in your name that we pray the name that we pray that will always be holy amen